Well, one of the greatest blessings of our church also happens to be one of our greatest challenges. Uh, the, the, the blessing that I speak of, or the opportunity, is our differences. Uh, we have people here from Japan, uh, Korea, China, Hong Kong, Palestine, Egypt, India, Sri Lanka, Peru, Nicaragua, Quebec, Croatia, England, USA, Holland, and that was only the ones I could think of just as I was sitting at my desk. There's a whole bunch more. I was looking at Josh Mayhew. Where, where, where are you from, Josh? El Salvador. You know, and there's a whole bunch more. I mean, it's amazing. In a relatively small congregation, we probably have 30 nationalities represented here. This makes for a flavorful soup because soups with many different ingredients are, are tasty. The challenge, however, is how to make these diverse ingredients mix together into a delightful flavor. Because as you know, some flavors just don't mix very well. That's why we don't have filet mignon ice cream and wasabi milkshakes. So let's think for a moment about this opportunity and challenge regarding this church. We are represented by some cultures that tend to be warm and highly relational. We are also represented by some cultures that tend to be efficient and love excellence in all things. Some of you are more naturally open and transparent. Some of you are more naturally reserved. Some freely share their opinions without being asked, and others rarely share their opinions even when they are asked. Uh, some have a high regard for authority and see it as essential for the smooth operation of any group. Others are highly suspicious of authority and prefer everyone to have an equal say in all decisions. Uh, some of you love order and structure and knowing what to expect. Others love spontaneity and variety and never knowing what to expect. Uh, some of you are thinkers and some of you are doers. The doers are tempted to think that the thinkers are hopelessly impractical. The thinkers are tempted to think that the doers are shallow pragmatists who evaluate everything by what works, but not by what's true and right. The fact is that there are so many different factors at work among just a small group of people. There are personality differences. There are family of origin differences. There's ethnic differences. There's life experience differences that have shaped every one of us here and in very unique ways. And the list goes on and on. And because of these multitude of differences that exist, even in a congregation our size, the challenge always remains, how do you blend so many different kinds of people into a true unity. Now, we don't seek uniformity, that is, everyone needs to become the same, nor do we just want diversity, where everyone is different. Rather, we seek unity within diversity. And this is the great challenge that's before us in Romans 15. This is what Romans 15, at least the first part of Romans 15, is all about. Think about this, that the early church 
experienced something that challenged its unity on a, on a fundamental level. Uh, it was gr- kind of birthed out of Judaism and, and the Jews were raised on scripture. They had high standards for all of life. They had rules for everything, how to eat, when to eat, uh, who to marry, how to marry, uh, everything. They had, they had laws for everything. They didn't have to think about how to live their life. They, they had a, a rule for every aspect of life. And so that's what converted Jews brought to the church. But then along with converted Jews, you had all of these Gentiles, non-Jewish people, that were basically idol worshipers who lived godless, sexually immoral lives most of their lives. They had virtually no standards. And when they came to Christ, they brought that lifestyle and that perspective into the church. Can you imagine two more diverse and different groups of people? They brought their vastly different perspectives and backgrounds And that challenged the unity of the church in the early church on almost every level. This is something that is talked about a lot in the New Testament because it was a massive issue. Now, Paul calls them in many places, but certainly in Romans 15, he calls them to mutually accept each other even though legitimate differences exist. They they weren't to have different doctrines. Uh, They were to all be about holiness. There were certain things that they had to be on the same page on, but there were so many variations in in things that were just acceptably different areas. So for example, follow with me in Romans 15. Let me read verses five to seven with you. Remember, this is what he's addressing, this this need of of bringing very diverse people with very diverse uh, worldviews together in one place worshiping Jesus Christ. Starting at verse five, Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Uh, Notice, you know, it shouldn't surprise you at all that that Paul uh, connects this appeal to the gospel, which is verse verse seven is the gospel, isn't it? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This, This word welcome in verse seven literally means to receive into one's home or, or inner circle of acquaintance. It's much more than just kind of saying hello to somebody who happens to walk into our church building. It means asking the person to, to sit beside you. It means when we go downstairs and we all eat, uh, there's a newcomer, we ask them if they'd sit at our table and we introduce them to the other friends around our table. It's, it's how Christ has treated us. He's, he's welcomed us in as an outsider into the inner circle, as it were. Now, as we continue our series on the Holy Spirit, what I want us to do today is to see several interesting connections that come from these verses in the first part of Romans 15 and how they teach us about unity. Today I want us to think about how the Holy Spirit has this vital part 
He's vitally interested in, he's vitally at work in creating harmony and unity in the church. Uh, I was saying in our pre-service prayer that uh, our church has been in existence now for just 15 years, but we've seen an unusual unity in our church, but I don't take that for granted because uh, I meet people from other churches regularly and pastors who are in churches that are not unified. And, uh, and this is the main way that Satan tries to undermine um, churches and believers and marriages and families is creating disunity. Uh, and so, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm always a little bit afraid. I want to function in faith, but I'm always as a pastor a little afraid that, that something will come into our church that will, will put a wedge between us. And, and create disunity. But I am so grateful that up till this point, God has given us wonderful unity together because there is so much potential uh, in any group of people, but there is so much potential when, for, our, for our differences to pull us apart rather than for our differences to make a very tasteful, wonderful soup. But this is what the scriptures point us toward. So what we're going to do today is talk about the relationship between the Holy Spirit and hope. This is the interesting thing. Wouldn't go there if you, you wouldn't think in a million years that when we're talking about unity and the Holy Spirit, the key topic is going to be hope, but it is, interestingly. Surprisingly, really. And so our our, our main thought today is simply this, hope is the glue that attaches very different people together. Hope is the glue that attaches very different people together. Who would, who would imagine that the main virtue, the, you know, the great theological virtues we talk about a lot in this church, faith, hope, and love? Uh, who would imagine that the Apostle Paul would focus and center in on the virtue of hope as a thing that, really produces unity, but he does. So let's look, look carefully at how these scriptures guide us with great care how to bring a godly unity among people of vast differences. Notice first that, number one, two points today. Number one, God's promises impart the hope that produce unity. God's promises impart the hope that produces unity. And we find this in verses nine to 12. Let me read that with you. Let me start at verse eight. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Okay, he's talking about the Jews, those who are raised in the, in the world of, of lots of rules and, and the, word, the scriptures all around them in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So these, now he's about to give us a whole bunch of promises. And listen to what they, he quotes a whole bunch of promises from the Old Testament. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, and here they come, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. 
And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. In this section of multiple promises, Paul draws from every major section of the Old Testament to inspire hope in believers of a better future. And what he is sharing here is that the future involves all the diverse nations of the world with all their diverse cultures and languages and that it's very clear that all through the Bible, God has a purpose that he's working towards and that is to bring all nations together worshiping Christ and worshiping God together. As he says in verse six, that together they may with one voice worship the Lord. Uh, when, when we see, my friends, what God wants and what God has planned, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, so therefore it's part of his plan all the way along. When we see that, that this is what God is after, what God is gunning towards, this is... Uh, what God cares about, it inspires us to want it too and to do everything in our power to make it happen. When we understand that, that, that this, is, this is part of what God wants for the church, we don't expect everyone at church to look like us or to act like us or to talk like us because that doesn't conform to the plan when we perceive that, that God has this wonderful vision of a better future where multiple nations from all around the world will worship the same Savior standing side by side, well, when we see that that's the end goal, then we start working hard to make that happen. We start making the adjustments in our lives because it will require adjustments. I feel like this is, to some extent, this, this grand goal of having all nations under Christ and worshiping him. This is kind of like the mission statement up on God's office wall. I love the way the message paraphrase captures verses nine to uh, 11. Listen, he says, then I'll join outsiders in the hymn sing. I'll sing to your name and and this one, outsiders and insiders rejoice together. The insiders, of course, the ones that knew God and knew the, had the scriptures, the Jews. The outsiders were the ones that are just lost in a different level, okay? There's two kinds of lost people, the, the religious lost people and the non-religious lost people. They're all lost. But some people know the standards of God more than others. And they, they're the outsiders, and this one, outsiders and insiders rejoice together. And again, people of all nations celebrate God. All colors and races give hearty praise. And surrounding this, this little section here from verses uh, 9 to 12, all these promises revealing God's plan to do this, Paul bookends two kind of prayer blessings, Okay. Whenever you see in the Bible, may the Lord do this for you. May the Lord do this. It's not really like that's what we do right at the end of our services. We give a prayer blessing. 
It's a prayer, but it's not in a sense, it's, it's not truly addressed uh, directly to God. It's, it's say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. We're talking to you, but we're giving a prayer blessing over you. Well, that's what he does here. He has two prayer blessings, one at the front end, one at the back end, one starting in, in verse five and the other one in verse 13. The, 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 the first one in verse five invokes the God of endurance and encouragement. You see that? May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you harmony. And then in verse 13, he invokes the God of hope to fill you with all hope. So let's take a look at verses nine to 12 and and kind of piece this, this section of scripture together and kind of try to follow the argument that Paul is using. He's, he's teaching us something and it's intended to, to move us, to inspire us, to fill us with hope. Look with me at verse nine. Uh, in verse nine, Paul is quoting Psalm 18. And of course, Psalm 18, if you were to look it up, is a Psalm of David. But is it only David that is speaking here? Well, if you look back to verse three, you'll notice that, that Paul is also quoting, if you look at the, I don't know, you know, in your Bibles, there's, there's most of you have Bibles where they has these little references in the, in, the, in the center. And those are the things that usually most people don't pay any attention to. Now you need to pay attention to them because they're, they're really very helpful, okay? And, and so in verse three in my Bible, it says, at the side here, number about three, citing from Psalm 69.9. It says that in your Bible too, if you, if you can find it. Okay, so he's quoting another Psalm there. And notice what he says. This is a Psalm 69. If you look it up, it's a Psalm of David. But notice what he says in verse three. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. In other words, Paul says that, yeah, this, on one level, this, this psalm is spoken, of course, by David, but it's spoken by the greater David. It points toward Christ. And therefore, we can read Psalm 69 as not just uh, something that David is saying, but that, that we can say that as Christ is speaking this as well. Well, it's very likely, and most commentators feel this, it's very likely that Paul is doing exactly the same thing in verse nine. He's quoting Psalm 18, which is David is speaking here, but probably Paul intends us to understand that Christ is the one that is speaking. And therefore, when he says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, the I there is the Messiah. The I is Christ. Christ is speaking and he's saying that that there, there will come a day where I will be praising you, O God, and around me will be this group of people, outsiders, uh, non-religious people that have come in and come to believe in me. Christ is the one that unites us. And he is the one that holds us together because he is our, our common hope. I was gonna check with you, Dale, about this because I know that you knew the answer, but um, in, a, in a symphony, before everybody begins, uh, is it the first violinist? Is it the oboe? 
Okay, but anyway, there's this one instrumentalist that sounds a note and, and they give out the note and everybody tunes their, you know, and they're all, they're all adjusting themselves slightly. I'm sure they've tuned themselves before they got there, but they're tuning themselves by the one instrument. And, and by doing that, everybody is in tune with each other automatically if they're in tune with that one instrument. Well, I think what these verses are telling us, my friends, is that that we don't achieve unity in the church primarily by just trying to make adjustments to each other. The the main way we kind of get unified as a church is that we tune ourselves by the one that's always in tune, without sin, Jesus Christ. The the promises then are, are not just about showing us God's plans for unity, but, but they're revealing that this unity is centered and based on Jesus Christ. I mean, this, this is no surprise. This, I'm, this is not rocket science here. All of us here are sinners. We're all sinners. We all deserve the wrath of God. Some of us are religious sinners and some of us are irreligious sinners, but we're all sinners. None of us deserve to know God. We're all saved by grace. We're all saved by Christ. We didn't save ourselves. None of us saved ourselves. Christ saved us. We, we all live by grace. We're, we have so much in common when we think about what Christ has done for us. The, the, the common thing that draws us all together, in fact, the only reason we're even here is because of Christ. You would never hang out with me if it wasn't for the fact that you came to Christ. You would you'd say, Tim, no way. You know, how, we would never get to know each other. You know, we're not like a bunch of fishing buddies that just like hanging out. We like all the same interests. We're so varied, but we are, we are brought together by Christ. Hope then, my friends, is birthed through the promises that are centered on Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, that Christ died to accomplish certain objectives. All right? He's tried to save us. But did you, do you see that his, his saving of us, had, had there was greater purposes than just you know, getting us to be forgiven for our sins? And this is a great theme, by the way, when you read the New Testament. Uh, there are so many different objectives that, that Christ accomplished. You know, he threw one ball and he hit about 10 targets with one ball. It's amazing what the cross accomplished. Well, one of those objectives is to bring all the nations and all ethnicities, people of high economic strata and low economic strata, people who are geniuses down with people who barely know how to read, people of all kinds of different ethnicities, people who are older, people who are younger, uh, all kinds of different personalities, introverts, extroverts, everything you can imagine to bring them all together into complete unity. All these nations that we, when you read the, the paper, you, you, 
you realize that all around the world, I was talking to Joanne's dad about this a couple days ago, about how every place on the planet has, has groups of people that hate each other and would gladly exterminate each other if they were allowed to. They can't get along with each other. They, they treat each other badly. Well, one of the objectives of the, of the gospel is to bring us to unity in Christ. The, the gospel, my friends, is the true answer to, to every form of racism and hatred and, and, and conflict in our world. The reason that all these peace talks with certain places in the world never hold is because they're not based on the gospel. They're not based on Christ. They're based on making little adjustments to one another and they don't deal with the hatred in the heart. Listen to Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. Speaking of one of the grand purposes of God's big plan, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will. Here's the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, one thing after another, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what Paul does is he presents a whole bunch of promises here. And, and when we understand the plan of God and, and the purposes of God, what happens is that we're given a vision of the future. This is what God is doing. This is, this is where we're moving towards. And we, when we see that vision, guess what happens? Hope is birthed in our heart. It motivates us to seek unity with other believers because this is what, we're, this is what the plan is. But here's the part that centers this message in our series on the Holy Spirit. That for us to experience this to its fullest, to experience the, the fullest measure of this hope and get that hope so that it actually propels us forward in, in real sacrifice so that we'll make things work with one another, we need supernatural power. We need supernatural power. This, you know, my friends, this, uh, this is not gonna happen just by a little bit of weak battery power. We just don't have the, the juice to make it happen. We need supernatural power. So, there, so yes, God does give us this big, um, fills our sails, as it were, with, with the beginnings of a breeze. We see, the, we see the sails starting to flutter in the wind when we, when we read the promises of God. But if we're gonna see real wind fill those sails and start to push the craft through the water where, the, where there's white foam coming around the bow and, and things are moving, well, we're gonna need something more than promises alone. We're gonna need the Holy Spirit. And so, right after giving these promises, he talks about how the Spirit gets involved in this process. So we've talked about how God's promises impart the hope that produces unity. Now we get to God's spirit imparts the hope that produces unity. God's spirit imparts the hope that produces unity. Now the word hope that is used in verse 13 
uh, is not uh, the, it's not used in the way that we use the word hope in our generation. Uh, people talk about, I, I hope to get a raise soon. I, I hope that she likes me. I hope to pass my exam. I, I hope to lose 10 pounds this year. Uh, particularly for me, that last one is wishful thinking that will never happen and there's no guarantee. So I've decided that that's a pipe dream and I'm not gonna get my hopes up, okay? Uh, the word hope here, that's the way that hope is used, the theological term hope in the Bible has a completely different meaning than that. Uh, the word hope means a solid assurance about something future that is not yet experienced but is absolutely guaranteed, okay? A solid assurance about something future that is not yet here but is absolutely guaranteed that it's coming. I think it's a little bit like the, the pension plan that teachers in Ontario look forward to. I hear that they have a very good pension plan. And in fact, I was telling dad about this yesterday and uh, he said, oh, Tim, you should use the illustration of politicians. They have a way better pension plan. <laughs> I didn't know that how, he was, he was telling me how good their pension plan is, but, but here it is. They got, they got a pension plan that's coming down the road and as they teach at times and there's chaos in the classroom or the politician is finding that there's a scandal now in the government and I, I don't know if I want to be a politician after all. As they think about that promise of that retirement, that nice, fat, juicy pension coming down their way, it gives them the, the grace to persevere because they know that one day that's, that's going to be theirs. This is the way that hope functions in the Bible, okay? That, that there is something guaranteed in the future that imparts encouragement in the present, even though nothing is there yet except the anticipation. This is the power of hope. I've, I've done a lot of thinking about hope in the last couple of years. It's, it's, uh, it's an area that I've neglected in my Christian life, but now as I get older, it matters more to me. Hope looks to the future, and as it looks to the future and sees the things that God says are common, it, it imports some of the goodness of the future into the, the heart, in the present, even though the, the benefits have not yet been experienced. We all know what this is like. Uh, it's, like, it's like that really nice family vacation that you plan long in advance. Uh, isn't this true? Just the mere expectation of going to Disney World and all the things you're gonna do and thinking about all the fun you're gonna have and all the meals you're gonna have and the, the, the blast you're gonna have with the family and all the laughter and as you think about what's coming, it encourages you in the present even though you haven't even experienced any of it yet. That's the way hope functions biblically. The, the, and this is the way the, the, the Holy Spirit unites with the promises of God, fills the promises of God with his grand wind. What he does is he gives us this increased anticipation and even an enjoyment 
of the things that are not yet tasted, just tasted and seen just barely. We just see them faintly, and yet we long for them. And in the longing, something happens in our hearts. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He, he, he uh, increases the anticipation. He, he strengthens that sight, that, that fixation, the joy of what you're looking at. I think it's very significant that the spirit is seen as necessary to get fully on, get fully in on the hope that God wants us to get in on through his promises. This this shouldn't surprise any of us as we've been going through this series on the Holy Spirit. We've talked quite a bit about the love of God, haven't we? And we've talked about the, the necessity of the Spirit's ministry in, in understanding the love of God. We talked about that in Romans 5.5 5 and in Ephesians 3. The, the scriptures tell us that God loves us, okay? And if you're a believer, you believe that God loves you on one level. But to really get in on the good that God loves you with an everlasting love, that God will never let you go, that God is fully committed to you, that God loves you more than anybody has ever loved you. To get in on that, you have to have the Holy Spirit pour the love of God into your heart. The Spirit takes the objective promise of God's word and makes it a subjective, experienced reality. The Spirit takes the objective promise of God's word and makes it a subjective, experienced reality. And the same dynamic is at work when we talk about unity. The hope of unity in the future, the Holy Spirit takes that reality and fills our hearts with it so that it says... In Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. What an amazing verse. I love this verse. What an amazing prayer blessing it is. And notice that it says... May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Did you catch that? In believing. Believing what? Well, the promises. Believing the promises that come right before verse 13. The promises. As you believe the promises, the Spirit, in answer to prayer, will grant you more belief, a stronger belief, a deeper conviction in those promises. And as you get in on them, it's as it were you, when, when, when you read this, the promises of God, it's like going into the shallow end of the pool. You know, you're standing up to your, this far or into the lake. You know, you're just going all this far. But when the Holy Spirit starts to get involved in the process, it's like somebody grabbing you and taking you right into the deep of the lake or the deep end of the pool, getting you to fully experience the the abounding hope that the promises hold out to us. So let's think for a moment about what we've just learned here. 
Let me give you two simple application points. One application point is to ponder. The other application point is to practice, okay? By the way, pondering is a a legitimate form of application because the scriptures tell us that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We're not just transformed by the renewing of our deeds, okay? We, We have to think differently and that's part of how we become godly. So pondering matters. Pondering is a legitimate application. So here's a, here's a, a pondering application that comes out of this text. Number one, actually there's only one. In order for real unity to happen between believers of different ethnicities, convictions, backgrounds, and personalities, we need to be firmly committed to both trusting in the power of God's promises and the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? My friends, we do not have the luxury of being only word people or only spirit people. Objective truth needs to be applied with power subjectively in our hearts or we will not change. So what about you? Honestly, think about this. Are you committed equally to depending on God's word to change you and depending on God's spirit to change you? you? You can't choose one or the other. We need both. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Most of us would say, well, you're definitely gonna go in error if you don't know the scriptures. How many of us would say you're gonna go into error if you don't know the power of God? But you need, you go into error if both. You need to know both. And consider this, this is something that, remember Dan Welsh, who uh, was that prophetic guy that actually Stephen Shirley talked about him having a prophetic word for them last a uh, couple of years ago and gave testimony about it last week. Uh, I was walking with Dan Welsh several years ago and I was talking about how some people tend to be more word people and some people tend to be more spirit people. And, and he, he said this to me and I thought it was profound. He said, but Tim, consider this, that it, it's the scriptures that teach you about the Holy Spirit. And so if you don't pursue the spirit, you're not as word as much a word person as you think. And that's very true. And by the way, if you just pursue the spirit, it's the spirit that takes you to Jesus. It's the spirit that helped all the authors write the Bible. So the spirit is gonna take you to his book and he's gonna take you to Christ. So the word takes you to the spirit, the spirit takes you to the word. if, If you really are one, you will be both. So ponder this. Are you giving equal time, equal pursuit to the word of God and the spirit of God in your life? And if not, why not? Well, that's to ponder. Here's something to practice. Practice faith. Practice faith. Faith in the promises. Faith in Christ. Faith in these promises. 
are essential to receiving the hope. We, the, the promises are there, but we don't get in on them until we believe them and are helped by the Holy Spirit to believe them. Think about faith like being the, the bank card that helps you to get withdrawals from the cash machine. Or it's faith is like the passcode that allows you to do the money payments and transfers in your account. If you don't have your passcode, you can't get in. You can't get in. I've got, um, everyone makes fun of me. I've got this, I've got it like about 350 passwords. But I'm not paranoid. Just want you to know that. Um, I've got this master passcode that if I ever forget, it's over. My life is over because all my passcodes go and they disappear. But I'll tell you that one master passcode that I have memorized and when I get Alzheimer's, it's over. All my accounts disappear. Um, It opens up all my other passcodes and all my other passcodes open up all my accounts on every level. See, I need passcodes to get into everything that I do in life, everything. That's, what, that's how faith works, my friends. If, if we don't exercise faith in Christ then, uh, and his promises, then the, the hope of the promises do not enter our hearts. They stay on the outside. And without faith, we remain in our little ethnic and friendship ghettos. And can I be just pastoral here for a moment? I've shared this a little bit with you over the years, but I've shared this a lot with the board. It's been a concern to me, you know, in our church. I, I love our church. I think our church is warm. People always talk about when they come to their church, it's warm, but there's an element of our church that's not warm. There's an element of our church that's very stiff armish. And some people, you go downstairs, they're always with the same friends. It's like they're blind to all the other people, blind to all the newcomers. They stay in their little, small little ghettos, and never break free from it. Listen, you can't break free from your little ghettos if you don't have faith in Jesus' promises. I feel like on one side, we got God's promises. On the other side, we got God's heart. We got, sorry, our hearts. There's the promises. Here are our hearts. How do we get God's promises into our hearts? I'll tell you how. There's the bridge of faith. And, And once we exercise the bridge of faith, the Holy Spirit takes the truck of hope over to our hearts and puts it there. But we have to build a bridge of faith in order to make that happen. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians in the New Living Translation. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Because the Holy Spirit is a promise too, right? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message that you heard about Christ. Unity, my friends, does not depend mostly on us trying to get along with each other. It depends mostly on understanding God's purposes and promises and believing them. And then, because we believe them, the good of them, and in this case, the hope of them, fills our heart. And, and inspires us to work for unity. It fills our hearts with God's heart, as it were. And we want what God wants because we have a bit of God's heart within us. Think of it this way. It's kind of like a director that reads a, a, a novel 
and he loves the novel and he decides he wants to turn it into a movie. And he's got a picture in his mind of what this movie is gonna look like to represent the novel that he's, he's read. And so as he's shooting the movie, uh, you hear a lot of cut. Let's try that again. Let's try that again. Cut. And then occasionally you'll hear, okay. I don't even know what they say, Andrew, when, when, when they get it right. But yeah, that's a, that's a wrap or whatever. You know, um, it's because at some point when the director is making a movie, he, he's, he sees that they've, they've actually produced something that approximates the, the, the picture that he's had in his mind of what it should look like. You see, that's what we're doing in church. We got this picture of what God wants the church to be like someday. And we got a, 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 a it just comes to us through the scriptures and through the, the, the spirit giving us kind of eyes to see it more fully. And as that picture forms in our minds, we, we try to make it work. And, and we have a lot of cut moments. Oh, uh, no, Tim, that wasn't how it's supposed to work. That's not unity. That's uh, selfishness. And, and then we have to try it all over again, you see? And we, we, we have a lot, we, we go through a lot of uh, adjustments here and there and, 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 and failures, but gradually we're slowly getting the picture together. And here's the picture, my friends. Let me give you another picture, a glimpse into God's planned future found in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. It says, and after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. Did you hear that? It doesn't say with loud voices. With one voice, they're crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So my friends, let's, let's make it happen in our church now so that we will be ready for that great day. Let's pray. Father, I ask in Jesus' name, please fill us with this uh, glorious vision that you have that's clear in your mind, but not so clear in ours. Fill us with the hope of this because this is hope giving that wow, one day people with many differences will get along and will love each other and will worship together. It's hard to imagine. This is, this is the, as John Stock called the church, the Christian counterculture. We're a different culture from all the different cultures that we come together and, and there's a brand new culture that's formed around Jesus. Oh Lord, we're, we're so thrilled that we get to be part of that counterculture. Help us, Lord, protect this church's unity, Lord. Keep us united by being focused and trusting and looking toward Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray in his name, amen.